Episode 182, Gene Rice, Chairman of Rice Cohen International and co-author of the book, Grad to Grown Up. I was about as opposite of humble as you could be. I had this huge ego. I made this impulsive decision. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Gene, his book, and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake182. As always, thanks for listening. My favorite mistake, I'm Mark Raven, and we're joined today by Gene Rice. Uh, among other things, he is author of a book titled Grad to Grown Up, 68 Tips to Excel in Your Personal and Professional Life. He co-authored it with his daughter, but we uh, we have we have Gene here today. He is the chairman and co-founder of Rice Cohen International. Gene's been in the recruiting industry for nearly 30 years and has been recognized as one of the top executive search professionals in the world. He's completed over a thousand retained searches, and that includes 211 in the C-suite. So he's been recognized by Recruiter.com as one of the 100 most influential people in the history of the executive recruiting industry. So before I tell you a little bit more about Gene, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Hey, Mark. I'm happy to be here, and uh, I want to first compliment you. I've had the opportunity to listen to a couple of your podcasts, and I really like the whole premise of it. And uh, so I'm looking forward to spending some time with you. Thanks for having me. Well, yeah, likewise. And uh, it would be great to hear your story. I think there's very little risk that you'll be kicked off of that list uh, for sharing a mistake story, right? (laughs) Listen, my podcast could be my many mistakes, right? (laughs) (laughs) You could do do your own series. How how this goes today, at least talking about um, a favorite. But so again, Gene Rice, he... Um, also co-founded Rice Cohen Training and Consulting, which is the largest training firm focused on improving the skills of executive recruiters. And he's an active member of the community. So Gene finds various ways. Oh, and who's your dog? <laughs> oh, well, we're going to get that under control now. I'm sorry, Mark. It's all right. What, what's your dog's name? This happens. It's Chase. Right? It's my daughter-in-law's. They're, they're walking outside now. Sorry. All right. So Chase, Chase out of here. That's we right. just Chase, Chase out. I, I Chase. <laughs> what, what, what kind of dog is Chase? Uh, 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 one of those mini poodles. <laughs> All right. Well, um, it was good to, good to hear from Chase. But um, so back to Gene. Gene, um, you know, gives back and contributes to his community. Um, he, after many years of being involved with the Make a Wish Foundation, a great cause, and serving on the board, uh, Gene and his wife Michelle founded the Plant a Seed, Inspire a Dream Foundation, a five hundred one c three nonprofit. Um, that allows financially challenged youth to pursue their passion. So I know we'll talk about that later on. Um, Gene's website for the book is gradtogrownup.com. And there will be links in the show notes for everything that Gene is uh, doing and writing and being involved in. Um, so Gene, you know, as we always do here on the podcast, as you know, here's, here's the main question at hand. You know, of all the different things you've been involved in, in your career, what would you say is your favorite mistake? You know, Mark, it was, you know, I've been thinking about it since you prompted me to, you know, and 
I could have went in many different directions. So it was an awful lot of mistakes I made in my marriage and as a parent. But the one I'm choosing is one that's actually one of the tips in the book. Uh, and this was, you know, I was early on. I was a young kid. I was going to St. John's University in New York. Back then, the drinking age was 18. And probably one of the best part-time jobs you could get while you were going to school would be to tend bar. You know, and I ended up tending bar in this small little club that used to have one and two piece acts every night. And then it expanded and I became the manager of the club. And the next thing you know, I started booking the acts and hiring staff. And it went on to expand three more times. And we ended up, uh, it was at that time, probably the hottest club on Long Island. It was a unique concept that we came up with. We called the club the home of original music. We didn't care what you played as long as it was your music. And bands like the Ramones and Joan Jett and Richie Havens and Bo Diddley and the Billy Joel band and uh, the Stray Cats all, all played for me, you know, and we'd had live music seven nights a week. And the biggest radio station at the time was a station called WLAR. They started doing live radio broadcasts from my club. And uh, I thought I was on top of the world. And the two owners of the club came to me because they had heard that I might leave to start my own club and said, listen, we need you to stay. And we're going to make you a one third owner and you can pay us back from the profits every month. And then they basically both, I came in and they both kind of took a back seat and I was running it. I was there. I was the active, I was the active partner. And one of the partners I loved, he was more into the entertainment side of it, but one of them was an older gentleman who, this is how he supported his family. He had two kids in college and he was penny wise and dollar foolish. And him and I would keep button heads. And one day during an argument, you know, here I am as a young guy, I was making more money, Mark, right? At that time, than my father was making as a steam fitter supporting a family of eight. I remember we, we would open the uh, the jukebox and the video games and every week we'd have over a thousand dollars in quarters that we, we would be dividing three ways. It was that kind of, you know, the money was ridiculous. And I just didn't like this gentleman. And I finally said to him, you know, either you leave, I can't be your partner, either you leave or I'm leaving. Thinking there was no way the club could go on without me. And he said, well, I'm not going anywhere. And I said, well, I'm leaving. I walked out. And here's what happened. I was about as opposite of humble as you could be. I had this huge ego. I made this impulsive decision. I had no plan in place. I had no idea that in my contract, I couldn't open another club within 10 miles of the existing club. I didn't realize at that time that you had, if you bought a club, you had to apply for a liquor license through the State Liquor Authority in New York, and that could take up to a year. And basically, I just walked out, took my share of the money and just walked out. And I got to tell you, I finally found a place and I, I opened a place up over a year later. I took my brother. My brother was my head bartender and he was the only one that I said I thought he had to leave with me, even though the staff I had hired, the bands. But my brother, I said, you come now and I'll make you, you know, my partner. That opened up a whole nother jar of problems, being in business with a family member. But I bought this little place. It was an old man's bar where people drank in the afternoon, but it was attached to a catering hall. 
And they had what was called at that time, one of only four legal cabaret licenses on Long Island, which meant you were allowed to have live music, Mark. And how did they get that? The Long Island fire marshal that gave the cabaret licenses out, he drank there during the afternoon. And cabaret to them meant an organ player on New Year's Eve. Well, I buy the club, I break the wall down to the catering hall, and I open up with a couple of punk bands. And I got to tell you, that town went absolutely well, nuts. Well, I'm for one, I'm sure the old men drinking in that bar weren't happy. They, they lost their place, right? They yes. Weren't happy. But the neighbors, they built, a, you know, it was on the main street in the town. But it was an upper middle class town. They built houses too close to the main street. The neighbors didn't want a rock and roll club there. So it became a race. They were calling the police every night. The police came. The town put in a special ordinance, a noise violation ordinance for me. They would make me pull the band off the stage. As soon as they started playing, I'd have to refund all the cover charge. And it got to a point where I went from having all this money marked to the end where I had to borrow money from my future wife to pay the electric bill, you know. And but what came out of it was it was my greatest failure. Right. And it could have destroyed me. But I learned so much from that mistake. Right. I never, ever took success for granted again. Right. Every business decision I made was a very calculated decision. Right. Uh, I, I wasn't impulsive. When I opened up the executive search firm, I was leaving a six-figure job in corporate America, but I had planned everything out, right? We had bought it to get all the equipment. I had, I had made a deal with the CEO of the company at that time that my, my recruiting firm would take on all of the company's hiring needs. They would pay us a retainer every month that gave you know, you know, the, the, the start of the business. I learned so much from it, right? And I grew from that. And, uh, and, and that's the one thing. I, you know, in tutoring and mentoring a lot of young adults, Mark, I see so many of them that the first time they experience failure, they have a really hard time recovering. You know, and, and in the book, I talk, grad to grown up, I talk about the fact that, you know, failure is part of life, right? And you got to take ownership of it. You can't blame someone else, right? I'm mentoring a young executive right now. He's on his fourth job in five years. And every time he's, he's telling me everything the company did wrong, you know? And, and I'm like, wait a second, company hired you. They paid you. They wanted you to be successful. If you're going to break this cycle, you have to look at it with a different set of eyes. You have to take ownership for the mistakes you made, right? You have to identify and write down what you're going to do different the next time, right? <laughs> so you can, and what now? How, how are you going to move forward? Because if I think real failure is making the same mistake twice. If you can fail, but you can now look at with a different set of eyes and more information, then it can really be a learning experience and it can really propel you in life. And that failure I shared with you about the bar uh, it propelled me in, 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 in my career going forward. Yeah. Wow. I mean, thank you, know, Gene, thank you for sharing all that because between the story and your reflections, I mean, every, every, everything you talk about there encapsulates what this podcast series is all about, right? Recognizing we, we're all going to have failures. We're all going to make mistakes. 
Um, you know, thank you for sharing about, you know, the, the mistake of, of quitting and not checking things out well enough in advance, the mistakes involved in, in that um, other bar. But um, like you said, the learning and uh, that, that came out of it. I mean, that, that's, that's really powerful to hear how, how that, how those mistakes stayed with you and kind of fueled future success. And Mark, that was like, at that point, that was a low point in my life. I still talk about it. I, mean, I had to move back in with my mom. You know, I had no money at that time. I went from being this big rock and roll club owner you know, to, to being a total failure. So uh, I do look back at it that, you know, at that time, I didn't know if I'd be able to recover. But uh, it, it did help me and it did propel me. And I sat down. I was very honest with myself and I was very introspective. And that allowed me to move forward. Yeah. Well, yeah, like you said, that that honesty, um, you know, when I think, you know, to other guests who have taken ownership for their role, even if, you know, there were circumstances where, let's say, it wasn't all, quote unquote, their fault. I think it's it's a lot more helpful to think of, um, you know, what what role did I play? What could I have done differently to to, to take that forward? And, you know, I, I'd, I'd be curious when it comes to, you know, working with these kids. Um and, 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 you know, sort of uh, learning to roll with it or bounce back from failure. Could, could you tell us a little bit more, even an example of, you know, what, what you can say, maybe, you know, is it easier said than done to say, well, you need to learn, you need to bounce back. It's okay. I mean, uh, I just well, like to hear more about that. You know, I, I'll even tell you something, which I think is really important. And one of the things I really talk about in the book, right, the grown up mark, right, is for the last 25 plus years, every summer for eight weeks into my company, we would take four college interns in. These are all four really bright kids going into their senior year of college, right? And they went through a pretty in-depth interviewing process against probably 25 or other 30 candidates and four were selected, right? And I, I felt that if they're going to spend eight weeks with my company, I, I had a responsibility to spend some time with them. And it started off where I'd schedule a couple hours with them once a week. And it started off as Gene's life lessons, Mark. All, all the things I wish I knew going into my senior year. And if I could share some information with them that might help them avoid some of the potholes, you know, all the mistakes I made, I wanted to do that. And what came out of it was so many questions. And can you talk about this? Can you talk about this? And it made me realize just how few of them were really prepared not only to start their professional careers, but their personal careers. And the thing I talk about in the book, these were really bright kids. So when you sat down, they went on to be lawyers. They went on to be doctors. They went on to be accountants. They went on to be engineers. And I would always sit, you know, before the summer was over, I'd make sure I sat with each one of them one-on-one -on -one to get feedback on how it went. And I would ask them, I would say, why are you going to engineering? Why are you going into law? You know why? And, and the overwhelming response, Mark, was at some point in their life, someone very influential to them, a parent, a grandparent, maybe a teacher, a mentor, coach, kind of guided them in, in, in this direction, right? And, and they guided them because they thought that would, they could make a good living doing it. But, but the experience was the overwhelming of they never had any hands-on experience doing it. And they'd come back to me a couple of years later. Like, I'll, I'll tell you a story. Two of them went to two of the best law schools in America. One went to NYU, one went to Boston College. They both had six figures in college loans. 
And they both graduated in the top 25% of their law class, went to work for big law firms. And within two years, both of them came back to me and said, I hate what I'm doing. I hate it. Yeah. I absolutely yeah. hate it. And so I, I really think, so to, to finish the story, my daughter, who I wrote the book with, Courtney, she went to Lehigh. I told you she, uh, she had a double major. She had economics and English. She graduated, you know, at Lehigh, if you graduate with a 3.75 GPA or higher, they'll, they'll pay for your advanced degree. So she stayed and got her advanced degree. She thought she wanted to be a lawyer. Well, she always had a passion for teaching, but she didn't. She thought that was under her. All of all her, you know, the kids she was graduating with was going into Wall Street or they're going to consulting. So she thought she wanted to go to law school. I said to her, Courtney, listen, based on my experiences with my interns, I said, before you commit to that, let's see if there's a small boutique law firm that locally that we can reach out to. And I helped, I helped her write the email, Mark, and it's in the book. And we'll tell them that you feel you have a passion for this and you're willing to come in and work for free. That's the key word, Mark, work for free. Most mm. people will take you in if you're willing <laughs> to work for free. Right? Sure. And this yeah. small law firm took her in and his partner exposed her to everything involved with being a lawyer. Mm -hmm. The research, the administrative part, took her into the courtroom five or six times. Well, the end result was that summer was over and she came to me and said, Dad, I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. Mm, you know, yeah. I, I really want to be a teacher. Now, the fact that she didn't want to be a lawyer, I, I, you know, that was good for me because I was I, I had already committed to helping her pay a lot of that law school. You know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but she always had a yeah. passion for teaching. Mm. And and she thought she thought I would be disappointed in her. Right. And I said to her, listen, I believe what Mark Twain says, Mark, you know, the two most important days in a person's life is the day you're born and the day you realize why you're born. And I, <laughs> right. I had an opportunity last summer. I helped her move out of her high school for the summer. And after we, we packed her up, we stopped at this Wawa, which is like a 7-Eleven in, in New Jersey. And she, we went in to get a sandwich. And there was three of her former students working at this Wawa. And when I saw how they responded to her, Mark, and how they were, you know, interrelating with her, I'm like, and laughing with her and talking about this in class and that in class. I walked out of there and I said, Courtney, you're doing exactly what you should be doing, you know? So the thing, the message I want your audience to hear, number one, I think one of the goals in life should be to find something that you sincerely love doing, that you're passionate about, that gives you purpose, and then do it well enough that you can earn a living doing it. Because my experience has been, Mark, if you can find that, that purpose in your life, you don't wake up in the morning going to a job. You wake up going to something you love. Your personal health is better. Your personal relationships are better. The glass can't be half full. Some days it's going to be overflowing. And I think as a parent, and I think it's our responsibility to encourage this, the young adults in our lives to pursue those passions. Now, of course, we can talk to them about plan B. They got to have a plan B. But every great dream begins with a dream. I don't care what that is. It could be starting a lawn service. It could be creating video games. Don't take that away from them. Because, you know, I don't know if you've seen any of the surveys, the conference board. You know, I, I, I read one of, they just interviewed 2,000 executives in their 50s. And 53% of them said these were successful executives that they had no job satisfaction in what they right. did every day. 
Right. Engagement rates are really low. People are really dissatisfied with jobs. I mean, that's part of the, like, you know, the quote, quote unquote, great resignation is more of a great job changing. I mean, there's some people leaving the market, but I think it's mostly resigning and going somewhere else. We think it, yeah. we hope it think it's going to be better somewhere else. Hopefully we're right. But think about that. Think about waiting until you're in your 50s to maybe take a, a chance like that. You know what I mean? Why, why spend 30 years doing something that doesn't make you happy, doesn't give you purpose? And, you know, and I'll tell you, you know, you know how many senior level executives I placed. I can tell you, Mark, that my experience has been the senior executives, the CEOs that I've placed that have added the most value to their companies, to their boards, to their staffs are the ones that not only have great professional success, but they have personal success. You know, I can tell you about some of the executives I've placed. These are not six-figure guys. They're seven-figure guys and girls that, listen, if you look at their career and their resume, you think, oh, my God, this is an overwhelming, successful executive. But they're divorced. They're never home. Mm -hmm. They don't see their kids very often. And to me, I don't think that's real success. So I think you got to have both. So do you think... Is there a connection where there's different ways of measuring success? Like somebody could have financial success, great salary, great rewards, but if they're not really loving what they're doing, does that then, do you think, have spillover negative effects into their personal lives then? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think you really, I, the point I talk about, Mark, is my experience has taught me that you can't have real professional success if you don't have personal success. And that's why in the book, Grad to Grown Up, the la- it's five sections, but the last section is life and relationships. My publisher said, we love this section, but we think it's a separate book, you know? And I'm like, well, wait a second. I said, I believe you can't have the professional success without the personal success unless I show them that I was vulnerable from a personal perspective, right? And this is what I had to do to overcome some of the personal issues to have both. Then I'm not sharing what I need to share, you know? Yeah. I mean, so it sounds like maybe, you know, uh, it goes hand in hand that having, um, you know, uh, uh, having a, a, a more successful personal life or having having better relationships or better family uh, connections or kind of, you know, uh, gives people or does one lead to the other? Or do they go hand in hand? I'm, I'm making a mistake of not forming a really good question there. But uh I think the more you have the personal, and let me tell you my own story. So I leave the bar business and I go to work for a division of an international Fortune 100 company called Alcatel. I start in sales. And within seven years, I go from sales to sales management. I go from New York City where I'm selling. 13 months later, I become the sales manager running the Long Island office. Uh 11 months later, I'm promoted to the general manager and moved to New Jersey to run the New Jersey state. A year later, I'm now a district manager running uh, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Delaware. Uh, I then end up running all East Coast operations. So this is in the late 1980s, Mark. I am a six-figure executive. Uh, I'm, I'm overseeing over 1,000 people, whether directly or indirectly. And I had no work-life balance. I was in a different city every single day. I would leave either Sunday night or early Monday morning. I wouldn't get back till late Friday. And I left. I left that business and left. And I was up for the big job. And I started my own research firm. And it wasn't for financial reasons. 
So real, just, real quick, real quick yeah. before you talk about that. So you're talking about those long hours. Was that because you had passion and you loved it so much or you had to? Uh, both. I, I, I did both? love, okay. I love what I was doing. I didn't love not being home with my kids. Okay. Sure. I mean, and that was a decision I made. I, I, I wanted to have both and I wanted to be home at night. I didn't want to be away from them. You know, my wife, you know, I have four children. They were young. My wife was home by, you know, alone, you know, four or five nights a week. And my decision was, hey, if I can make the same amount of money and be home at night, then it's a win-win. And I want to tell your audience, if, if there's executives out there thinking, I'm, I'm going to tell you, the more work-life balance I got, the more money I made, the more successful I was in business, you know, and I could and I could be home at night, you know, and 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 fight for that, strive for that, because I really believe if you want to have real professional success, you got to have the personal success as well. Yeah. So I want to come back and talk more about helping adults, you know, find that success and help companies find um, successful candidates. You have talked about, and you know, we're both old enough where you would say kids, we could mean college students yeah. or with your foundation, um, plant a seed, inspire a dream. You're, you're working with kids before they get to college. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the foundation and, and how you're trying to help influence those kids um, personally and maybe for their future professional sake. Yeah. My wife and I in 2008, and we had gotten exposed to some, uh, some kids and some situations and, and Mark, you know, I think every parent out there, I had four children. Three of the four found that thing they were passionate about as young adults and teenagers, right? My oldest daughter was into acting, right? Became, ended up being the president of her, her drama club in high school, right? Courtney, my other daughter, she was a volleyball player, was a captain of a volleyball team and played club volleyball and was in clarinet player and all the bands. And Owen was, my son was a basketball player. I mean, Owen got married yeah, April 30th. Uh, four of the uh, groomsmen in his wedding party were guys that he played travel and AAU basketball with since fourth grade, right? So what, what do those passions do to young people? Well, it builds their self-esteem. It might be that one ray of sunshine on a cloudy week, right? It's something to look forward to. You know, my son was late for everything, but basketball practice. Come on, Dad, I want to get there early. I want to get there early, right? Right? It connects them with positive role models, the coach, the mentor, the guitar teacher. And depending on the passion, it connects them with like-minded kids and, and friendships are formed, right? That helps someone grow as, an, as a young adult. Now, my, one of my daughters never found her thing. And she probably had the toughest time as a teenager, Mark. Now, you go to the underserved community, and a lot of single parents, their kids have the same passions, the same interests. But you know what? In most cases, the financial resources aren't there for the child to take karate lessons two times a week, to take singing lessons, to take art, to take cheering, right? To, you know, to play basketball. So my wife and I step in. And we will interview the, the child. We meet with the child and the family. Uh, we will find them who that mentor is going to be, you know, who that teacher is going to be, who that sensei is going to be, the drum teacher. We put them together. We check with them every single month. We give them an annual scholarship. And at the end of the year, we meet with them again. And we renew it. And we've had kids go on to get, uh, you know, uh, dance and cheering scholarships. Uh, we've had one young man, multiple black belts in karate. 
And we believe that's a major thing. So the plan to see and inspire a dream, we've helped over 800 kids. And the message I want to send is this book, Grad to Grown Up, uh, any financial reward that comes from me personally, the publisher is sending it directly to charity to help more kids. You know? And if there's anyone listening who's having a hard time and has a child, just go to the website, theplantofseedfoundation.org, and you can right. fill out an application and we will get back to you. And do they have to be located in any particular states well, or area? we were helping get- them. I will tell you, Mark, we started off, we were helping them all over the country. Right? We had kids everywhere, everywhere. Texas, California, uh, Chicago. And then we try to narrow it down now where, so we like to meet the kids and the, it makes a difference. So we have them from, let's say, New York to Philly, right? Or Delaware. Now we make exceptions. And that's why I'm saying to your audience, if there's an exception out there, we will review it and we will make decisions on it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, it's, it's great that you're providing that help and you know, um, you know, finding a passion, I'll, you know, just reflect for a minute. Uh, I'm a drummer and I was fortunate. I've got a pair of drumsticks over here. Um, but I was fortunate that, um, you know, my, my parents had the means to provide drumsticks and a drum and could pay for drum lessons and things. And, you know, I, I, I decided not to pursue that as a career. You know, okay, I'm thinking back to career decisions. What, you know, uh, does that passion become a career or does it remain a hobby and an interest? Um, it's hard. It's hard to decide, and um, you know these career, these possible career mistakes that that people can make. I mean, it's 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 such an important decision. And how many different careers or opportunities, or how many possibilities are you even exposed to? There are certain jobs everyone knows: doctor, lawyer, teacher, police officer. You know, and and then there's so many other jobs that people just kids might not ever be exposed to. So uh-huh. how, how how do we help them with that? I wonder. Well couple things. First of all, we had one of the Planet Seed kids. I don't know if I told you this, Mark. Uh, we were, you know, he was with us for four years taking drum lessons, right? We found him a great drum teacher. He ended up getting a full drum scholarship to a private high school. They needed a drummer. I thought that was really cool, you know. Well, here's what I share with you. Let's go back to my daughter's story. I encourage young people that if they think they have a passion, Sometime, I don't care how young it is, 15, 16, to go do a free internship, get exposure to it. Get you, it's going to tell you, if you go spend a, a few weeks doing something that you think you may want to do for a career, people will take you in. Senior executives will take you in, especially if you say, I'm willing to come in for free. And they expose you to that. My son, Owen, Mark, he had a real desire to go into the financial services industry. Right. So he did the exact same thing. And he found a small RIA financial firm and he went in and worked for free one summer. He drove an hour and 15 minutes each way. I actually split the gas with him that summer. Well, he didn't make any money that summer, but that internship helped him get the next internship at Vanguard. And at Vanguard, every year, They hire hundreds of kids off the campuses, but they take 20 kids globally and they put them in their high potential program. He was the first University of Maryland student to be put into that program of the top 20. And uh, without that free internship, right, he never would have got that. But number two, that free internship, he saw what was going on every day. It said to him, this is what I want to do. 
I want to be doing this. I could see myself doing this, you know, and I tell the kids, I'm, you know, the men, the interns that come into my office, you know, at the end of this internship, I say to them, I want you to be able to answer two questions. Can you see yourself doing this? Number one. And number two, can you see yourself being happy doing this? Yeah. The answer is, is yes. And yes, then you go for it. You know? Yeah. I mean, so hopefully it's, that it's, answers your question. Yeah, yeah, it does. And I mean, it's, it's, it's best guess. And, and, yeah, I just love the examples that you shared. Um, you know, instead of guessing, going out and trying something on a less risky, small scale. I think that's an important lesson. Your daughter having that internship is a decision point to realize, okay, no, I'm not going to pursue that. Because I have a lot of friends from college who ended up going into law. And it seems, unfortunately, the mistake rate is pretty high. And when they really, when they, when they really get into it and sometimes they'll change directions and maybe a different type of law is, is, is better, but it's, it's just, it's sad to see people invest that much time, that much effort, that much money into something. And and I'm not a lawyer, of course. And thankfully I haven't really, I haven't regretted any of my educational decisions, but um, boy, if we can head that off sooner than later in different ways, that, that would help in a lot of ways. And Mark, the other thing I'll share with you is, you know, all these young young adults have these college loans, $1.6 trillion in college loan debt, $1.6 trillion. And, you know, I know young adults that have $1,000, $1,100 a month for 10, 15, 20 years, right? A mortgage payment, right? Uh, and I'm a real big believer. If you don't know what your major is going to be, right? Go to a junior college, take all the required courses, right? After you get your associate's degree, you'll be in a better position to know maybe what you want to do career-wise. Then go to the four-year school. And a lot of people don't realize this, Mark. You get your four-year degree, you put your resume together. You don't even have to put the junior college on your resume if you don't want to. All All they care about is where you got your four-year degree from. And your college loans will be cut in half, you know? And, you know, I ask all these young people, who's got college loans? They all raise their hand. I'll say, okay. They all know, right, how much they borrow. They all know they have to start paying it back six months after they graduate, Mark. But no one can tell me how much they're going to have to pay back every month. You know why? Because they don't figure it out until they stop taking loans. Yeah. You know? And it's just, and and if you're going to take communications or, or marketing, right? You don't need to come out, you know, you can go to a different type of school. You don't need to go to a really expensive private school, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, Jane, I want to ask um, uh, two questions about um, recruiting, maybe one from a a candidate perspective and one from a a hiring company perspective. Um, And so, again, Rice Cohen International is the firm. RiceCohen.com is um, their website. Like what, what's the most common mistake that a, a candidate might make in working with a recruiter? What, what's a mistake that you would really hope anybody listening uh, never makes? You know, what's really important is, first of all, understand the type of recruiter you're dealing with, right? And Mark, this is another one of the tips in the book. It explains the four different types of recruiters, right? Uh, you know, there's in-house recruiters right? That work for the company, right? There is what we call temporary staffing recruiters that put you on a temporary assignment, right? The majority of the industry is what we call contingency recruiting. And that's 
probably the most exposure that most candidates get. And what is that? That is a recruiter that a company might have an opening. They go and they call three or four different contingency recruiters and say, I have this opening. They just want to fill it fast. So they'll have three or four different recruiting firms, plus they're looking themselves, sending them resumes. And then they make this decisions. Uh, that's, they, they don't have the same kind of control. And then there's executive retained recruiters. That's what Rice Cohen is, the Cohen Ferries, the Spencer Stewart's of the world, the hydrogen struggles. The executive retained recruiter, they work like a consultant does. They get paid a fee by the firm, whether the firm hires an executive or doesn't hire an executive, number one. They work exclusively. They interview all candidates, internal, external. And their job is to put usually the five or seven best candidates in front of them. That type of executive recruiter can have a major influence on your career because they specialize in a vertical market. They're known within those markets. They know where your skills are best needed. So the first, to answer your question, understand what type of recruiter you're dealing with. Number two, once you understand that, build a relationship. Be honest and be open with them. If the timing's not right, that's fine. If you can help the search professional and you know someone that might qualify and might want to hear about it, share that with them, right? And Because my experience has been at some point in your career, you're, you may need some help. And if you have a relationship, the executive recruiter is going to be best suited in a position to know a little bit about you, you know, and, and share information with them. Tell them, you know, what you see your next opportunity being like, you know, like when like you I'll think say to you some, might be ready. Yeah. Yeah. Listen, yeah. I'll say to, I'll say to someone, listen, I know you're really, really happy and this is, this is not going to work for you. But if I gave you a magic wand, I said, you can diagram the ideal next job for yourself or what type of job you would want to hear about, share that with me. And if it comes along from one of my clients, I'll tap you on the shoulder, you know? So yeah. share that information. It's all confidential. It's not mm -hmm. going to go anywhere, you know? So yeah. you won't get in trouble for talking to a recruiter and saying, Hey, I'm not interested right now. Here's some people I might introduce you to. No, no. Or even if, even if you're interested, maybe in pursuing another job, again, like you said, it's confidential. You shouldn't worry about getting in trouble with your current employer. Listen, if you know, you have nothing to lose by keeping an open mind. That's what I say. It's okay to turn something down, right? You know, it's okay to turn something down. It, it, it has to have reasons why, you know, and, and I, I used to tell people, listen, if your boss got a call on an opportunity like this, okay, trust me, they would, <laughs> they would keep an open mind, sure, sure. right? Keep an open mind. If it doesn't give you more opportunity to grow professionally, if it doesn't give you more opportunity to make a bigger impact within your company and your role, and it doesn't compensate you at a higher, a, a higher rate, you stay where you're at, mm -hmm. right? You stay yeah. right where you're at. You have nothing to lose. Yeah. Yeah. But you can always do an interview if it gets to the point of an offer, like you said. I mean, you know, I mean, what, what percentage of the time? I mean, this is a general question, but it, for the types of searches you do, how often does somebody kind of the preferred first choice candidate turn it down for one reason or another? Well, honestly, if it goes that far and the top candidate turns it down, then the uh -huh. search professional hasn't done his job properly. Oh, so, okay. so what, yeah. so what we do before a final interview, Mark, after mm -hmm. every conversation with an executive, we're asking them, what is it about my client 
that has you interested enough that you're going through a pretty intense and behavior-based interview with us, and now you're willing to interview with them. What are the reasons that's driving this for you? Sometimes the executive might say, there's nothing in particular, but I'm just, you know, I'm unhappy and I'm keeping an open mind. Okay, that's information we need to have. But a lot of times they're going to give you two or three reasons, Mark. And then after every interview, we're going to say, did those reasons hold true? Did any new reasons surface, right? At some point during the process, we may we may recommend reasons that they didn't share that they might not be aware of. Like, are you aware that the 401k is a dollar for dollar match? Do you realize that they have a separate, you know, uh, they have a separate profit sharing plan that's been contributing this much, you know? So before the final interview, there's, you know, usually 13 or 14 reasons that we're sending to the candidate and we're saying something like this. We know tomorrow you're going in for the final interview. We thought it might be helpful just to share back with you some of the things you've shared with us around the reasons why you're intrigued. Reminding them. Yeah. yeah. Reminding or confirming, right? And there's 13 or 14 quotes from that, mm-hmm. you know? And by that time, we've already figured out, okay, if the compensation's X, or is that not going to be an issue? So we already know on the other end that we can come up with the compensation needed to make that not an issue, you know? And then we're also saying, what questions do you have? Is there any concerns? I want to get them all addressed, you know? And like, you know, and, and I'll tell you, there's, there's three things that make for not only a good short-term match between an executive and a company, but more importantly, Mark, a long-term match. If you're going to join a new firm, you should feel that you can come in and make a contribution and you should know how you're going to do that. But equally as important, you should know a year down the road that by joining this firm, you should be able to look yourself in the mirror and say, as a result of me joining this firm, I've grown professionally in these, in these ways. It can't be all you contributing and not growing. And then the third, and this is where people miss it, and I recommend going back, the most important thing is not only should you respect the person you're reporting to and the people you're going to rub shoulders with every day, but you should like them enough personally that if you had to go out and break bread, it wouldn't be something you would dread doing. The people part of it is critical. You can be contributing, you can be growing professionally, but if you hate your boss, you're going to leave pretty soon. Yeah. So I've said to people, I need you to spend more time. I want you to spend more time with this person and that person. I want to really, I want you to feel that this is someone that you can really grow from, that you can enjoy being around, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, And that piece I recommend. Yeah. So finding that match, I mean, it's a big risk, especially if someone's relocating. There's a lot involved. You you really, gosh, yeah. And it, you, you need to find that match. And it sounds like you've refined that process over time, even to the point. I think it's interesting. You 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 train other executive recruiters. Yeah. You're sharing what you've learned. Yes. So for me, I want people to do it the right way, you know. And, you know, now it's changed a little bit since COVID. But, you know, when we would move, you know, we place a C-level executive, more than 50% of them, they were picking their family up from one city and moving mm-hmm. to another city, Mark. Like I know you've done recently with you and your wife, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. There's children involved. There's a spouse involved. I would tell my staff, you know, we're involved with this. we got to make sure this is a really good fit. I want all the questions answered. I want the concerns addressed, right? Because not only is it the right thing to do, Mark, but if I place a senior executive and it fails, it not only affects their family, but affects my relationship with the client. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. You know, you put the right person in, the relationship grows. Mm-hmm. You put the wrong executive in, it can destroy the relationship. So it's something that we really took a lot of pride in. Yeah. 
So um, maybe a final question, like from a company side who's looking to hire a, a high-level executive. Um, I mean, it seems like there's all kinds of risks. If somebody is moving up into a certain position for the first time, their first C-level job, or somebody who's done that job before but is switching industries, how, how do you try to mitigate the risk of, um, let's say, you know, first time moving up or moving over? If someone's always been in the same vertical for a while, so let's say they've been in manufacturing and now they're going to jump to a services business. How, how, how do you try to make sure that is a good fit that way? 99% of our searches that we do at the C-level mark, they come to Rice Cone International because of our reputation and our industry expertise, meaning they know we're the thousand pound gorilla in the ed tech vertical, in the management consulting, in the corporate learning and development vertical. They use us because they want us. They know we know the talent and they want to hire someone that has direct industry experience in their vertical. Every now and then I may put a superstar executive from a different vertical in, but when push comes to shove, then very, very rarely will they get the, the job because they want somebody that's done what they need done. Right, that maybe they've been a chief operating officer at a bigger firm, but now they're ready to be president of a smaller firm. Right? Maybe they, you know. So it depends, you know. Uh, so they use us to go get direct industry experience. What we will do is we will meet with the client and really understand what they need in the background and the experience, and then we will build a customized behavior-based interview to make sure that the skills that are absolutely necessary have been documented by the executive in a previous role, right? So we're matching that piece up. The harder piece to match up is the culture fit. You know, that's where the culture fit is, is, is the harder piece. I, we can screen and we can assess based on the skills needed. It's, it's, it's getting their arms around, is this going to be someone that the board's going to want in that, in that, in that board meeting every, every quarter, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. So that's the harder piece. Yeah. Well, you have uh, a lot of experience and uh, a lot of lessons learned. And I, I think you, as you've demonstrated, Gene, and you articulated so well, uh, a willingness to recognize and admit mistakes and own up to them that leads to growth and, uh, like you said, you know, a uh, lot, lot of mistakes leads to a lot of success, right? Yeah. yeah. We, I, I've been blessed to be in this industry because, like I said, you know, when I first started it 30 years ago, Mark, I didn't realize at the time the purpose it would give me every day. So I found that purpose. You know, I loved what I did. That's why even as a chairman and a CEO and the company grew and grew, I never walked away from being involved in the day-to-day -day searches because that's what I was most passionate about. I would hire a manager underneath me to manage all the administrative and the people piece of it. I liked being in the middle of who's the right CEO to run this company and take it to the next level. Who's the right CEO that can take this to an IPO and get it over the finish line. That's the piece that I was passionate about and gave me purpose. And that's what I encourage everyone out there if you don't have that, I encourage you to find it because it will change the eyes that you look at every day. Yeah. Well, thank you, Gene. And, and one resource that I, I know will help a lot of people is Gene's book. 
um, again, written, co-authored with his daughter, Grad to Grown Up, 68 Tips to Excel in Your Personal and Professional Life. I imagine there's something in there for professionals of, of all ages, or is it focused toward younger professionals? It's, it's There's something in here for everybody. It takes yeah. you through all the mistakes I've made and what I've learned. So it starts off, first of all, in life, right? And things that are important. It goes into job search. So what you know, what it will take you through, Mark, is it 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 helps people become what I call is something that I believe every human should strive for. How do you become a grandmaster of interviewing? How do you become the best of the best? And why is that so important? When you find that job you're passionate about and you're interviewing against four or five other top executives, my experience has been the grandmaster who understands how to really interview professionally is the one who gets the offer, number one, and he gets usually a higher compensation. So we teach them how to do that. We give them a roadmap in the book on how you can explore, is this really a passion? And if it is a passion, how do you get interviews? And then how do you get the job that you're looking for? Because a lot of people don't understand. I'm passionate about this, but I have no idea on how to even, is it real? And how do I get an interview if it is real? And then how do I actually get the job? The third section is career how to show up, how to show up. You know, I'm a firm believer. There's no elevator to success. You got to take the stairs. And what does that mean? You know? Yeah. And then it goes into personal finance. I've been blessed to create great wealth in my life. I didn't come from anything and simple things that I did that might help people. And then the last section is health and relationships, you know? And, and so it goes in and, you know, the health and relationship, I'll just tell you one quick chapter. It's like, there's a chapter entitled leave your baggage behind. And each one of us, as human beings, we're raised a different way. A lot of I was raised by two parents and a lot of great stuff came out of it. But there's a lot of baggage that I did not want to bring on to the next generation. But you have to first identify that baggage you want to leave Mm -hmm. behind before you can leave it behind. So I talk a little bit about some of the baggage that I left behind and how to do that and why it's so important. So there's five sections, the 68 tips and. I think there's something there that can help everyone. And if someone can get two or three things out of it, that's helped them. Mm-hmm. Then the reason yeah. why I wrote the book is just to help people. And it's been a success. Yeah. Well, thank you uh, for telling us about that, Gene. Congratulations on, uh, on writing that. And thank you for sharing so much about the different aspects of your career and the work you're doing with the foundation. Really enjoyed hearing about that. So there will be links to the book, um, Gene's company, the, the nonprofit. Um, look in the show notes for that. So again, Gene Rice has been our guest, Rice Cohen International and many other organizations. Thank you for being here. So Mark, you, you, so you, you don't want to hear about the other 287 mistakes I've made? <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to, I'm going to help you start a podcast series, right? <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Mark, for having me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks. Same here. Well, again, to learn more about Gene Rice, his book, Grad to Grown Up and More, You can look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake 182. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.